Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Alec and Jan. How are you? We're very good. Are you able to hear us clearly? Perfect. Perfect. Loud and clear. Good. Thanks so much for, for joining me uh, today and taking some time to, to talk about your travels. I've, I've known it's, it's been uh, quite a while since, uh, since your travels, but it's obviously still quite inspiring for, you know, the, the new and up and coming guys uh, and adventurers like myself to, you know, kind of go back and uh, see how things were done, um, you know, in the 70s. Yeah, maybe I should uh, just introduce ourselves so that everybody can know who we are. Uh, I'm uh, Jan and my husband, Alec, and in 1977, we took our Series 3 uh, long wheelbase Land Rover camper, um, which was uh, a three-year-old. Um, we went uh, and drove 40,000 miles through 29 countries in Europe, Africa, and Asia, and we were on the road for 14 months which is an incredible feat considering um, those years, you know, the, the tools and um, the, the accessories were so limited back in, uh, in the 70s compared to what is available today. So that is obviously um, a lot more impressive to have done it uh, in those years because I think those years it was more, uh, I think, knowledge and experience was regarded um, something, um, you know, much higher than, actually having tools because there was so much, uh, such a limited amount of tools and uh, equipment back then. Yeah, no GPS, no smartphones. Uh, it's all a bit different. Well, I think, you know, I think there's still, for me at least, there's still something quite romantic about the fact that, um, you know, to, to travel kind of uh, quite bare with the bare minimum with maps and compasses. Being a diver myself, uh, you know, I use, I, uh, was taught to use compass uh, quite um, thoroughly underwater. So um, that's something that got stuck with me. And then um, there's just something, it's almost like reading a book, which we'll get to soon. Um, you know, reading a book compared to an audio book, there's something about touching the pages and turning the pages that just brings uh, a different experience. And that uh, goes the same with maps, I guess, traveling with maps. Oh, yeah, we had um, Michelin maps for North and uh, West Africa. And um, we still have those now and they're pretty much falling to bits. Um, and Bartholomew maps for going out in, uh, out to Afghanistan and out to Nepal. And a silver, silver compass for the navigation crossing the Sahara. And then the road was about 20 kilometers wide and anywhere on that way <laughs> through it was the correct place. Sure. Um, you'd rely on locals to keep you out of trouble, which we did on one occasion. We stopped to talk to this guy and we um, shared some food with him and we were just about to go and he, he, he got quite agitated. He said, don't go that way, go, go the other way. And he was running his hand in the sand and we learned later that if we had followed the route we were intending, we'd have been in deep trouble or deep sand. Sure. So we were, he was one of our first angels as the, from the book. <laughs> sure. Which we'll, uh, I'm going to speak to uh, uh, shortly. Uh, but just to add to your point, I think that also you rely on a good co-pilot, uh, someone oh, with a sense of direction and a good uh, notepad. Yeah, well, the, the, the practice was, Across the Sahara, there was supposed to be metal triangular poles put in by the French military. Yes. Um, they were there where you couldn't really go wrong, but when you were in kind of very sandy area, there was no sign of them. But sure. uh, what, what we did was we, each time we passed one, uh, Jan would take a compass bearing, make a note, and the theory was if we felt we were very much in the wrong, we'd do the reciprocal bearing and get back to where we knew we were right. Sure. So. Yeah, and also, obviously, you know, that makes it slightly trickier in a, in a desert where you've got less rocks, less trees, less uh, uh, points of interest to kind of uh, write down. But I'm sure, obviously, with uh, Jan next to you, I'm pretty sure, well, it, it's obvious that she did quite a good job at, uh, you know, picking up whatever she could to, to keep you on track. Yeah, that's true. 
Yeah, so basically 2019, end of 2019, I came across um, a post on Facebook and um, it was um, a picture of uh, both of you with the Land Rover with the title Stranger Like Angels and a Devil or Two to boot. And um, I read through the post, the previous post that was posted, and that led me to actually ordering and actually getting into in contact with you in end of 2019 to be able to uh, get a book shipped to, to South Africa, which arrived shortly after. And um, obviously, um, after reading the book, it, um, it was extremely inspiring um, to, to get out and continue um, not only exploring, but, you know, exploring with a older Land Rover. And um, I think that's why my connection came with uh, with your story. Um, so to backtrack from um, from the book, obviously everything started a few years before that, um, especially for you, Alec, that you were stationed in Antarctica. Yeah, that's right. I spent did three seasons. Uh, we would we would com commute down there each year. We'd leave at that time. The aircraft we were using was the Havilland Canada Twin Otter, which were made in Canada. So we'd go there for a couple of weeks, prepare the aircraft, and then fly down um, via, we'd go from uh, Toronto, West Palm Beach, um, Trinidad, Manaus, uh, Santa Cruz, Bolivia, Mendoza, Argentina, to Punta Arenas, where we'd wait for good weather to fly across Drake Passage. Uh, which we did on three times. And then in March, April, we'd uh, fly back to Toronto. Sure. And, um, and your, your seasons spent in, in Antarctica, I mean, uh, besides work, uh, what did you do for recreational uh, activity? Recreation, well, that's a little bit limited, but uh, British, <laughs> British Antarctic Survey were quite smart. They provided lots of raw materials, you know, a bit steel and wood and so you could make stuff sure and i spent most of my kind of non-working time well i guess it was working time as well you know i'd make yeah. access stands for working on the aircraft um you know special tools and so on i see so you're obviously quite uh, besides being adventurous and outdoor type quite uh, quite creative with your hands as well which obviously would be advantage when setting off on your big journey well, I was brought up on a farm where you become every farm as a handyman fixing this, that, sure. and, and then uh, joined um, Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers. It was in the army for nine years, um, which was very enjoyable. Trained in um, southern England and then went out to uh, Hong Kong, um, back to Germany where I met Jan. She was in the military too, and uh, and then eventually volunteered for British Antarctic Survey, and spent the time in the Antarctic. Sure. And then uh, um, over to you, Jan. Uh, uh, Alec mentioned now you were stationed in Germany uh, for the military. You were a nurse, am I right? That's correct. I did my training in the army, and uh, had the first um, couple of years. I was based at different hospitals in England, and then I was posted out to Germany for my third year of training. And uh, during that time was when, yeah, Alec and I met, and uh, that started uh, some great uh, tours around uh, Europe. We had some, um, you know, being right uh, close to so many different countries, it was great to uh, go on various trips in our free time. Sure. And before that, uh, was was uh, uh, traveling an adventure something uh, part of your ch um, your childhood um, uh, period or not so much? Not so much. Um, I was very much uh, based in uh, our hometown in Essex and uh, I was into horse riding, had my own horse for a while. Um, but that was sort of my outdoor activities. But generally, I was very much part of um, the town there and uh, uh, our family were all located there. I never thought I would go anywhere overseas. And um, 
it wasn't until I went out to Germany that I got a little taste of what it is to uh, go to a place um, where you can't speak the language and you know everything is different the food is different and so on and it was very exciting sure definitely and then uh, yeah and then soon after you met uh, Alec and um, that's when um, with his return from Antarctica uh, and obviously careful planning uh, that's is that when you guys decided to to with the or at least in, um, thought of the idea of uh, traveling around the world with uh, old Land Rover well, we well, as you say, old Land Rover. It wasn't old at that time. Well, back then it was a, a three-year-old uh, <laughs> Land Rover, so it was actually brand new. It was almost uh, not even one. run in properly. Yes, that's right. Um, well, uh, during the one of the tours that Alec took down to the Antarctic, I actually went and worked in a, a hospital in Alberta, in um, Canada. And uh, so I did my own thing. I figured if Alec was off, because by then, you know, we were married and he was off down to the Antarctic and I wasn't going to sit at home um, doing nothing interesting. So I uh, went off to work in Canada. And so every time he went away, I, I did a different activity. And when we met up on after the third time, um, I went across uh, to meet him in Toronto and um, he said that there was the aircraft was going to be uh, high, loaned out to um, a construction company in the Sultan of Oman, and they needed an engineer to go with it. And by that time, uh, we were actually soon to uh, make definite plans to buy a Land Rover and so on. But to go to the Sultan of Oman was a country that only just opened up to the west. And it was an ideal opportunity to go, and we made every um, took every advantage to get to know the the country well while we were there. Sure. And um, I want to ask uh, Alec then. Um, so when when uh, you you basically decided that this is uh, the trip that's going to happen, um, being still a newish vehicle, uh, what? Besides the space that you took on the trip, uh, what um, additions did you have to add to the Land Rover to make it comfortable for, for you as a couple to drive su such a distance and thus do such a trip? Well, it had had a very rural start in life. It, my uncle bought it new. Um, interesting, it's only £1,700, brand new. Um, <laughs> it spent its first two years of its life carrying around pigs and potatoes. Yeah. So when we got it, there was a couple of days of de-contaminating <laughs> it. Um, I then um, was inspired, shall we say, by the Carawagon um, elevating roof. Elevating roof. Sure. Um, so with Jan's father's help as a draftsman, we drew out my version of it and we made this elevating roof. We put in the water tanks. Um, extra fuel tank. Um, what else did we do? Kitchen. Kitchen. Cupboards, yeah. And made facility to sleep. We we're both over six foot, um, but we slept in a bed uh, a meter a meter, meter wide. wide. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure on the colder nights that was uh, uh, nice and comfortable. Yeah. Um, we were, we were and locked. then um, uh, electrically or mechanically, was there any uh, any additions made to that to make the vehicle ready for the truck? Yeah, we bought a capstan winch, um, which we never actually used to rescue ourselves, but it saved an awful lot of time on several occasions helping other people sure. who got themselves in trouble. Um, we put in uh, the ferry overdrive, which was a great help. Because uh, it had the six-cylinder petrol engine, mm. um, which was a really nice engine. A bit greedy on fuel, but uh, many of the countries at that time, when we crossed Iran, it was ten U.S. cents a, a gallon. I mean, yeah. So obviously, there, there it was, uh, you know, not an issue at all. But then, obviously, uh, comparing it to a diesel, I would assume uh, maybe in those years as well, even it was maybe a better option to take a, a petrol um, car, just due to the fact that you could pick up potential uh, dirty fuel or whatever the case might be on the trip. Um, yeah. yeah, you can do a lot of repairs on a petrol engine, 
But the diesel, if you get a problem with the fuel system contamination, it's not really something you can do beside the road. Yeah, so. sure, exactly. But then with, with this, with this uh, um, thirsty engine, uh, how much liters of fuel were you carrying at any stage? Um, seven. Yeah, well, we had 12, 12 jerry cans, uh, 12, uh, 20 liters a piece, and then the, the original fuel tank was 11 gallons, so six, 60 liters. We put in an extra um, under seat, another 10 gallons. Um, so we had, theoretically, they say you should, I think the formula we use, they say you should figure out how much fuel to carry by um, your worst fuel consumption um, plus 10% plus 200 miles. Sure. Uh, so yeah, we, so you were, you were sitting on something like 350 litres of fuel. Yeah. Um, we we didn't have any problem with fuel. We had a very good... Uh, I went to Brown Church Components in London, which I learned are still in business doing accessories for Land Rovers. Mm -hmm. I said right told him what we were doing where we were going told give him a budget price and he said i'll put a kit together and uh, we used pretty much everything that was in it and there's um, one interesting fact we one of the things was a gasket kit for the whole engine which had every ring seal see uh, gasket and sealing ring for the whole engine uh, except on one occasion, we were in the mountains in Pakistan and uh, started the engine up in the morning and water sprayed out from under the bonnet. <laughs> and uh, on most engines, you have the bypass hose, which runs from the water pump to the cylinder head. Well, on this engine, it was a thick O-ring. Um, so I thought, got out my gasket kit, and would you believe it had every <laughs> single gasket in it except that one. Yeah, Murphy's law. Obviously, it will obviously be the one that you did not uh, uh, get in the in the in the pack. So we also um, had, we also had a spares kit for our water water filter, and I fished through that, and there was an O-ring which was exactly the right outer and inner diameter diameter, but was too thick. So with a kind of razor blade and a file, I managed to slim it down to fit in, and got us all the way back to England. That's incredible. And uh, um, regarding the weight, I mean, obviously you had substantial weight. Did you do anything to the leaf packs to kind of uh, uh, strengthen or upgrade it for, for all the weight? Well, it had the um, heavy, well, they call it the heavy duty springs. And it had an overload spring on the bottom. And um, our first breakdown was in Nigeria. We trucking along an absolutely awful blacktop road and there was a kind of loud bang from the rear end of the vehicle and one of the overload springs had broken and uh, so being British we stopped and had a cup of tea and thought what we were going to do about <laughs> it. Um, we knew we'd get spares in the town we'd come through about a hundred miles previous but uh, weren't sure about the town we were coming up to which was about the same distance um so we decided we'd turn back and uh, while we we're having our cup of tea there was a wimpy construction company land rover went past at great speed with um, some local guys driving it and uh, after we'd gone a few miles we came across this land rover which had not gone round a corner and finished up wrapped around a boulder beside the road mm. Fortunately, the guys in it were not badly injured, but a few cuts and bruises. And uh, they said, oh, Wimpy Camp. I said, we, there's a road camp. So we took them to the road camp. And Jan took these guys off to the health medical center. I was under the Land Rover just looking at what we, how the spring was doing. And the manager, site manager came along. He said, you know, what, what, what's, what's up? I said, oh, we just brought in three of your guys from a road traffic accident. He didn't ask how they were. He said, how's the Land Rover they were driving? <laughs> I said, well, it didn't look too good. He said, well, that's the third brand new Land Rover they've 
managed to write off wow. um, in the last couple of months. Yeah. But he said, no problem. He said, what's your problem? I said, oh, you've got a broken spring. He said, well, bring it round to the garage that my team will fix it overnight. Um, there's, this is movie night. Um, and you're invited for dinner. Uh, see you in the bar. And so we uh, had a very pleasant evening with them. And he said in the morning, he said, um, you know, go and have breakfast in the canteen and fill up with fuel before you go. We stayed Incredible. in that um, air-conditioned uh, guest room, didn't we? Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, well, that's that's life's way of giving back uh, because of that O-ring that was never packed into the uh, um, gasket kit. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's the balance of that then. But yeah. um, um, you mentioned something that's almost a theme throughout the book, um, the biscuits and tea. Um, Jan, I need to ask you a question. The um, I'm from Alex's uh, point of view. I'm assuming you know he obviously used a lot of space for fuel and the spares. Um, is it safe to say that you took the rest of it for biscuits and tea? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean the the guy we told about uh, who came across um, with his camel um, in the desert, the one that helped us to get on the right route. That was the thing he was saying. You know, have you got any um, anything to eat? I mean, he wasn't we didn't understand one another it was just all uh, you know sign language sort of thing and um, i uh, got out a, a packet of ginger biscuits that was wrapped in several layers of uh, plastic bags to keep them dry and uh, handed that over to him um he didn't know that i was really handing over a real uh, british traditional uh, sure. biscuit that is you know was one of our <laughs> treasures but um <laughs> You know, it was lovely to see him taking those uh, wrappers off and getting into those biscuits. Sure, and, definitely. Yeah, I mean, and also as you go around, um, that is one of the things that um, connects you with the local people is tea or coffee. And, uh, you know, a ceremony like in Mali would take a whole hour to, to have um, uh, three glasses of their mint tea. Um, which we enjoyed when we went on the border crossing between Burkina Faso, well, Upper Volta as it was then, yeah. into Mali. And um, yeah, it's it's a great point of uh, of meeting with with people. Um, yeah, definitely. But then also um, to stay on the topic of food, um, how did you plan or prep uh, for such a trip regarding uh, uh, food and um, uh, obviously including snacks and so on? Um, I mean, obviously that that must be something. Besides the fact that you can obviously buy fruits and veg and um, uh, um, starch and whatever along the way, obviously there should be some form of uh, at least like a, a emergency stock that you should constantly keep in the Land Rover, stocked at all times for for both of you. That's correct. Um, we actually bought four months worth of dried food, um, including potato and egg powder and um, yeah, all sorts of different things. And one particular thing was uh, blocks of dried meat that Alec had sourced from the Antarctic um, where they uh, go out into the uh, with the dogs and sledges out into the uh, into the bondu as they call it um they uh, go with 10 man packs and um they don't always eat everything and so when they uh, finish the 10 days they then start a new pack and everything else gets put um aside to later be taken uh, who anyone wanted it for camping trips when they got sure. back to uh, home so Alec had collected quite a few of these uh, wonderful dry packs of uh, concentrated um, meat. And um, we also, so as we went along, we would buy daily, we would buy fresh food. It was really thinking about the desert when we were going across the desert, not sure. really knowing how that would be. Um, so I sort of had a 10-day uh, meal plan and so on. And... Um, yeah, and we kept all those supplies um, up in the roof box on the roof rack. I uh, see. Because they were light, and so that was a good thing to keep up there. Sure. 
And then regarding uh, spares, Alec, um, what was the, the uh, biggest um, uh, spares that you decided on to take with you on this trip? Um, well, brakes, all the kind of seals for the brakes and clutch system, uh, spare clutch, um, brake shoes, um, yeah, a few, a few hoses, uh, spark plugs, distributor cap, which failed in the middle of Vienna. Um, what else did we have? Yeah, it was just basics, really. Um, sure. Yeah, like solenoids, uh, coil packs. Um, yeah. I'm assuming, uh, um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, points. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, all yeah, kind of consumables. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then um, regarding the the overall weight of the vehicle, do you did you ever um, uh, weigh the vehicle uh, at full capacity? Weight? Well, not really. No. Just look, look look at the springs. <laughs> which, um, which brings to mind another funny story when we were in Oman. Yeah. I was looking after the twin otter aircraft, um, and we flew out to a because these it was for Taylor Woodrow Tower, and they were built you know building, doing buildings for the Sultan, and we flew into this airstrip, and we were going to be flying something out. I forget what it was. And the pilot usually did the loading. And he, after a while, he stuck his head out the door. He says, how much more stuff is there to go? And <laughs> the, the guy in charge of the work team there, he, says, he kind of looked, looked over his shoulder. He said, oh, the tyres look all right yet. <laughs> he said, well, it doesn't quite work like that with an aeroplane. It's not like a truck. Exactly. Tell me, oh, what what tyres did you run uh, on that trip? On the Land Rover, what tyres did we have? Uh, what tyres did we have? Um, Don, uh, I think there were Dunlops, the first one, and then when we went in Iran, we put new new tyres on, which were Bridgestone or something. I see. Um, but they were not, because you have this dilemma, if you're going across desert, if you're going to be in muddy areas and sandy areas, and blacktop, which do you choose? Sure. Um, one of the, many people put the sand tires, aren't they, for sand, which is, which is fine, but they, they're quite soft rubber and they wear out fairly quickly and they're quite expensive. Mm. But the more normal tires, when you're in sand, they can be a bit of a, they can make things worse because they sure. soon start digging a hole for themselves. But we we soon learned that if you get into soft sand, don't struggle and you know backwards and forwards. All you do is dig yourself a hole. Mm. So we'd stop uh, and put immediately put sand ladders in yeah. front, and with Jan would stand by it so we knew where they were. Because the vehicle, when you set off, it kind of jettisons them rearwards into the sand, and you got to know where they were buried or you could lose your sand ladders but that was a pretty effective system they were very basic um it, it was just a two inch square angle iron welded yeah um, and they got us out of most trouble that we had yeah i mean that's that's the beauty of um you know if, if anyone goes through your photos if you look at the vehicle itself you know, uh, it's it's so stock and so standard that um, it's it's quite interesting, um, you know, to compare that to what people, a lot of people tend to use today. You know, the amount of accessories that's added um, to make sure a trip like this is comfortable, um, you know, but sometimes forgetting that trips trips like this is, is still possible, you know, with minimal uh, amount of equipment, just kind of strong will and, um, you know, a few spare parts. So, um it's always um, nice to see, even if it's going back in time, to see kind of stock standard vehicles doing uh, these incredible feats of journeys. Yeah. yeah another little tale with the um, winch uh, is in Romania and we were parked on the, beside a river. And as we pulled off and chose a place to stop, there was nobody else around except there was this Romanian army truck in the river with two guys sat on the roof. 
And we said, you know, what, what are you doing sitting on your truck in the middle of the river? He said, oh, we, we're stuck and there's um, a truck coming to help pull us out. Uh, well, lo and behold, the truck appeared, drove into the river, ran the front of the truck to pull it out, and there now had two trucks stuck in the river. Oh, wow. In the river. Um, so we got our winch hooked up to it. We managed to pull one winch out. One we one the second one pull the second truck out, but the other one was in a bit too deep. Right. Um, the army officer who was in charge of the second truck was very thankful um, that rescued him because I think he'd have been sent off to Siberia or somewhere if we'd have uh, gone back and said, "Well, I've got my truck stuck in the river as well." <laughs> And he was amazed that our Land Rover was our own property, wasn't he? Because it was when the time when oh, Romania was a communist country. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, the 70s was uh, quite a, a, an amazing year, at least from uh, finding um, some content uh, on the Internet and reading stories and books and so on. Um, because um, obviously it was the middle 50s, I think, that um, the Cambridge and Oxford um, expedition happened. And then, um, but that's well before my time, obviously, and the 70s as well. But um, until today, there's still amazing footage of, a, um, of the Leyland brothers in Australia doing a trip to Cape York in their landies. Uh, there's Nance and Peter uh, Walker, I remember, that did the um, um, the Samsung Desert Crossing. So it seems like the 70s was this kind of era of adventure and um, everything, like I said before, everything was kind of done on um, on the spur of the moment. And, you know, when you get stuck, you figure it out. There wasn't so much um, of the uh, consideration of, um, you know, what if it was, we'll get there and we'll figure it out. So. Mm -hmm. um, 29 countries, 65,000 kilometer trip. Um, the, the first thing, obviously, um, when I was reading the book was the quality of the pictures. Um, even the pictures of Alec when you were back in Antarctica, um, it, it's so colorful and not, not, a, not so much colorful. It's almost as if the, the, the pictures that was uh, added into the book uh, gives you almost like... Um, an atmosphere of what it was like with you being in Antarctica and then also in all of your trips. There was some form of creativity that was uh, uh, added to the um, to the photos of your trip, which obviously just gives so much more color um, to all the stories um, from from your 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 trip um, or your expedition. Well, the thing was, there was actually before digital cameras. Um, <laughs> It was a Olympus Trip 35, which was one of the first point-and-shoot cameras. Um, so because you were using film, you really thought about each picture you took. Sure. Whereas with the digital, you just, you know, you can shoot off 10 and pick the best one, throw the rest away. Sure. It's, yeah. um, it, it's definitely, I mean, it gives you so much more insight on, uh, on the journey. And um, it's... Um, Basically, uh, you know, like you said, um, back then, everything was kind of uh, accounted for. If it was, um, you know, space or uh, weight on the vehicle or the, the pictures uh, being taken of the trip. Um, of all these countries, I mean, you, you started out in, uh, in England or in the UK and you worked your way basically down to, to Africa where you, um, you were supposed to go uh, or end up in Kenya, am I correct? But because of uh, political... Uh, geopolitical issues obviously you kind of had to reroute your your route slightly yeah that, yeah that's correct once we got to cameroon we went to the british embassy because we'd heard there was fighting in zaire which is now democratic republic of congo yeah um and um the border between um kenya and tanzania was closed and it was similar time of uh, idi amin in uganda and um so the British Embassy said, uh, you know, we got visas for the continuing journey, but, um, uh, you know, they left it up to us to decide whether we should go on or not. But we decided why bother going into troubled areas when we haven't even seen uh, around West Africa. We'll just reroute and make our way back 
through the uh, Sahara again to go up to Europe and then make our way to India because we, when we were going to go uh, across to Kenya, we were going to ship to India and then make our way back to England. Right. But, you know, we, we just um, was very flexible in, uh, you know, uh, judging the situation at the time and then uh, changing the, the route, uh, you know, to make um, life um, still enjoyable. We didn't need to sure. get into trouble. Yeah. Sure. And um, I think um, of of the countries, if we if we stick to to Africa, what was kind of uh, one? Uh, what was the country that you kind of enjoyed most of uh, of those that you passed through? That would be Mali. Because of Mali. No, I mean for, oh, for what reason? Oh, for what reason? I beg your pardon. Um, well, the people were very welcoming and it was very, um, I guess we enjoyed the desert type um, landscape. And um, yeah, it just um, was a very compelling uh, place to be. Sure. And, and then, course, when we were there, no, I was going to say when we were there, we um, were hoping to get to Timbuktu. And um, but the river Niger, uh, we which we crossed at different times, um, it floods at different times of the year, and it had flooded too much for us to cross. So we had to abandon that idea and uh, continue on going. Um, um, what would it be? East, east to Niger. Yeah. I see. And then, uh, Alec, uh, comparing the, the first and the second trip through the Sahara, which one was uh, tougher? Sorry, I didn't get the first bit of the question. Um, if you compare the first trip through the Sahara to the second trip back oh. up again, uh, which one of those two trips were kind of the most taxing uh, for you? Well, they're, they're pretty much the same because we, well, we, we covered about 400 miles of the same route. Yeah rest we'd come down we come from morocco algeria down into niger and then going back we went niger algeria tunisia i see but when, but when we uh, first began the desert crossing we we tied up with a, a couple from new zealand didn't we yeah um who were also on their first crossing and we were with them for two or three days just because i guess it felt a little scary going off into the desert sure and, uh, but on our way back, we were totally on our own, just the two of us. Yeah, and we, we, we took a road which had not been used for a long time. So we, if we'd have broke down, we'd have had a long wait for anybody coming along. <laughs> and it was sure. all um, getting extremely hot. It was advised by the Automobile Association in Britain who gave out some information on overland travel. Um, and they advised not to cross the desert in June because it was getting to that really sure. hot season. But you, you see some interesting people and vehicles crossing the desert. One was a Citroen 2CV um, with a guy and his girlfriend who seemed to spend most of the time manicuring her nails. <laughs> I think they had an Alsatian, yeah, they had a they had an Al Alsatian dog. dog. They picture that in the Sahara. Yeah, Citroen 2CV uh, Alsatian dog and uh, a young, Someone, young lady doing her nails. Well, you know, uh, even until today, if you watch some videos of uh, of the Sahara crossing, uh, so many times you'll still find guys with uh, BMWs or old Mercedes or whatever, uh, a oh, stock yeah. standard car getting, uh, you know, being found in the middle of the desert um, and that needs uh, assistance. So yeah. um, I'm assuming there is uh, times or periods where these people probably know better uh, routes or whatever to take and quite possibly easier to to manage uh, with two ve two wheel drive vehicles but uh, that's definitely not something that i would rec uh, or uh, try to to do by myself um and then um then we you went across europe into um kind of the middle east region um did you you work, went from uh, turkey into iran or how did you? Um, uh, what was the route that you uh, that you took? Yeah, Turkey into Iran and yeah. then into Afghanistan, which was our favourite country uh, in Asia. Sure. And, um, there you can go. Um, there's a blacktop road that goes north and then east. It's like a diamond 
or um, or you can go south and then east. But we chose to go Straight across. The, the central route from Herat to Kabul, which is just dirt tracks the whole way. Yeah. And then um, your what was the most eastern uh, part that you guys reached before deciding to turn around? That would be in Nepal. Nepal. Yeah, Kathmandu. Yeah. Yeah. Did you do any any uh, hiking uh, while you were there, or it was um, majority of the time with the vehicle that you stayed with the vehicle? We stayed with the vehicle. We we did that year. In fact, was one of the they, we learned afterwards one of the worst years for weather. There'd been some people who got caught who, out and died. Yeah. But during that time, um, with the road we were on, became blocked because of so much snow, and we thought, well, we'll just camp here for a couple of days and make cups of tea and talk to the locals and we got we eventually learnt from them they said oh the road's open again now so you can carry on so um that's where we um, got into making um meat pies didn't we we made ourselves an oven yeah we, we, we used um a clay pot a clay about three two three liter clay bowl yeah, you bought yogurt in the market. Um, up in the bottom of that, we put three pebbles, uh, a top off an oil can, <laughs> and then put um, a, we put your pie in it, and then a pizza tray on the top, and put it on the primer stove, and made absolutely excellent meat pies <laughs> using the dried, the dried meat we'd got from the Antarctic. That's incredible, and um. When when you decided to to work your way back home again, did you follow the same route back, or did you do uh, something different? Uh, we did a, a different route. We we were hoping to go into um, Iraq, but we didn't get a visa, um, and we came back through eastern Turkey, um, and in winter time, the road we were planning to go on, we got to a police checkpoint. They said, "Oh, you, which where are you going?" and this, we said we're following this route. He said, "No, you're not. Not for the next four months. You're not." <laughs> um, so we then carried on a different route. Well, and we went, had to turn back, didn't we? Yeah, we turned back and went to, towards Lake Van, which was very cold, and we had some quite some adventures on that route. Um, That's amazing, and it's. Um... Yeah, like like Van is kind of uh, in the eastern part of the of Turkey, right? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. very cold. We had some times where we parked for the night, and we had, had a military vehicle come and see what we were up to. And uh, they said you can't stay here. There's bandits and this, that, and the other. Yeah. So they said you must come and you can park outside the police station. So that happened on two nights, and then the third night. Uh, we went to a police station and said, can we park out, park outside your police station? They said, no, but you can park over the road. <laughs> it's, uh, but uh, uh, regarding uh, Iran, or, um, India or, uh, or Pakistan, uh, obviously it's quite mountainous area. So uh, I'm going to assume uh, off the bat that you obviously, or the Land Rover obviously took some, uh, uh, got taxed uh, with the, with the um, elevation. Yeah, we we did we did the what was it was supposed to be the high, highest road, highest point of the highest road, road in, in the world, world. eighteen thousand. And this yeah. was in Ladakh in India, which is kind of it's in India, but the people ethnically are Tibetan. Sure. We went to Lai, which is the kind of capital of the area. We'd already crossed over three passes, twelve, thirteen, and fourteen thousand feet. And when we got to Lay, we met some folk who were traveling the same as us. And we said, you know, they said, you're supposed to report to the tourist office. And I said, what do they tell you? And they say, I would just tell you not to go north of the town. Sure. Um, but um, we'd seen a sign. It's been said pointing to the highest road in the world, which was north of the town. So we, we got up in early in the morning. And we're traveling with a Swiss couple at that time. And we drove up and up and up, got almost to the top. And there was a, a checkpoint with a barrier and a tent beside it. 
no sign of anyone. The barrier was up, so we went on through and eventually topped out at the at the pass. Yeah, 18,380 feet. Exactly, and there's a beautiful picture in the book um, yeah. which... Um, which exactly uh, shows you the, uh, uh, and including all the other pictures of uh, Afghanistan, gives you the absolutely breathtaking views um, that you get from um, from overlooking the uh, from the mountainous um, yeah well, about, areas. You had about a three hundred degree view all around. You see the whole of the Himalaya, um, you know all the big peaks. And when sure. we when we'd had breakfast. Uh, we set off back down again, and that time the barrier was down, and this soldier came out. He said, where are you going? <laughs> we said, we're going to lay, as if it was the most normal thing to be doing. He said, you're not supposed to be up here. And we said, no, sorry, we promised not to do it again. We figured that he'd probably be in more trouble than we were for sure. letting us go through. For sleeping. But the, <laughs> the Land Rover itself, when we were going up to that height... Yeah, I did oh, it was seven, seven, eight, or nine miles to the gallon. Wow, it's not yeah. exactly altitude compensated carburetor. Definitely not. Um, and obviously, I'm assuming um, you know the 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 lander probably overheated quite often on this trip as well. Um, no, the only the only time was one day um, as we came to the Niger border, we stopped about hundred meters short of the border. Because the engine was overheating and parked with nose into wind, which was blowing at the time. Yeah, the engine cooled down, and the guys on the board wanted to know what we'd been doing. Parked, and we told them, and they were quite happy. But we, yeah, it behaved itself pretty good. The engine, sure. And um, and then with returning home after a trip like this, um, you know. Uh, was there still um, itchy itchiness in in uh, in your bones, or uh, you were happy uh, by the time you got home to kind of um, you know settle for a while before deciding on the on a next trip or adventure? Well, you, once you've got the travel bug, you can never get rid of it. It's, <laughs> it's an incurable disease. Definitely. Um, but I think we were ready to have a break, but with with our minds thinking that it won't be for um, what well, I thought we'd probably be on going off again in a couple of years. Mm. We hoped Alec um, had the fortune to um, have a jo three job offers when he got back, didn't you? Yeah, when we were in India, I wrote to somebody in London I knew who was the kind of agent for Twin Otter Aircraft in UK. I said, who have you sold aircraft to recently? He gave me three addresses, which I wrote to, and I had job offers from all of them. That's incredible. And so I spent five years in Plymouth uh, as chief engineer most of the time. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting flight, looking after the same type of aircraft as I had in the Antarctic. Um, yeah, and then we went off to uh, college, um, further training before we went with Mission Aviation Fellowship to... Um, back to Mali. Back to Mali. Where we lived for 14 years. Wow. And brought up our four children and um, continued the adventures because, you know, I mean, outside your house, it's a dirt road and you're in the capital. Yes. And um, we had, uh, yeah, we got actually got to Timbuktu um with all our four children, we drove up there um, uh, when uh, Maria was just two, didn't we? Yeah, that's incredible. And uh, uh, the t during the time that you were staying there, was there a little uh, European community uh, in Mali or were you uh, kind of almost by yourself? Oh, no, there's an expat, expat community there. Yeah. Uh, a lot of French people. And, um, yeah, it wasn't huge, but, in fact, Bamako was very much like, um, still like had a sense of being a village, although it was a city. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, very colourful and uh, very welcoming people. And sadly, of, of late, it's been a very difficult country to be in. There's been a lot of trouble in the north in areas where Alec had gone a lot to uh, do radio installations for communication uh, with solar-powered 
um, radio. Yeah, this is before mobile phones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, and then, you know, if you look at it from that uh, angle, the trip was kind of a catalyst for, um, for um, Explore More, um, which is um, um, your, your, is it your oldest son? We just have one son and we have three daughters. Yeah. It's okay. Uh, so Charles. Charles, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. So basically all of this uh, gave him such an amazing platform to an upbringing you know, to kind of uh, follow in these footsteps uh, that you left in the sand and uh, continue, obviously, this amazing journey of exploration uh, all around the world. Um, so that's also, I think, I, I could be wrong, but I think that's probably where I found the the post um, for for your book was, uh, I think it was an Explore More um, post that was done on, uh, left on Facebook. Um, so obviously with his website, um, he offers some amazing content and products. Um, so um, if there's anyone, you know, that's uh, uh, into adventure, the outdoors, um, I would uh, obviously recommend visiting his uh, social media and um, having a look because obviously he does a lot of updates on um, current uh, travelers, isn't he? That, that's correct, yes. The inspiration for Explore More, which is spelled E-X-P-L-M-O-R-E, um, was from our travels and our Land Rover, um, but uh, Charles is into curating stories of people who are um, on the road out there now, and um, it makes interesting reading. And not only um, people who are doing overland trips, but people who are taking on opportunities to live in interesting locations, like sure. um, there's a couple who are up in the um, in the Scottish islands who are making a life there and being very much um, outdoors and close to nature. And um, Explore More um, has a mantra, uh, explore more of the world, engage with the people who are in the world and um, embrace the cultures uh, so that we can all, um, you know, see what is worthy in one another um, to get along and to take care of things on this planet. Sure. And um, and then also you've got a website, uh, strangerlikeangels.com. That's correct. Our book, yeah. Yeah, for our book. And it has a lot of um, backstories and um, things more on the Antarctic. And we also have... Um, Part of uh, the story of actually our Land Rover we still own. And in 2018, we decided we we're going to bring it back to life because it's been sitting in our garden for many years while we were restoring the house we live in, which is an 1840s house here in the Black Forest in Germany. Yeah. And, um, anyway, this, this uh, our Land Rover, um, Alex started to dismantle it in order to have it restored. And very soon it's going to um, be going off to England um, to take part in the uh, Land Rover Legends show as a pre-restoration exhibit. Mm, that's amazing. And, and then uh, Charles is going to then take it on, um, not to do himself, but to uh, enable it to be restored um, Yeah, by doing a Kickstarter. So that's something. That's amazing something that will come along soon sure that's something to look forward to as well so um regarding the land rover uh, there is a, a page for that on instagram return of a legend yeah um, so that's i'm assuming that's where all the content will be uh, posted regarding the restoration and the adventures uh, of the land rover correct that's correct yeah return beautiful of and then uh, the the website. Uh, obviously, besides the book, you also do uh, you also have an audio book and you do the readings um, of the book, right? That's correct. Yeah, and it's it's free to listen to our uh, book um, chapter by chapter that we have narrated, um, and also our book is available as a a paperback, um, which you can find the information from our website, strangerslikeangels.com. But also we have it as a ebook. That's possible, and all that information is on the website. 
Sure. Well, having a, a, my book next to me and the fact that it was actually, I have a, a small little message handwritten from both of you, obviously makes it uh, an ideal um, um, a buy. Uh, if it's not only for yourself, but for someone else. Um, so, um, and then also the, the other thing I wanted to mention is uh, you do your, uh, the ebook is, um, is it an ebook or, or, and an audiobook? Um, okay. Am I, um, no, you've got, a, you've got the ebook, you've got the ebook, electric, uh, electronic version yeah, of the book. Yes. And then, no, we don't have an audio book. It's just I on see. A podcast. Yeah. I see. Okay. So the, uh, then there's the, the, the podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. um, yeah. So obviously that could be all be found at, uh, strangers like angels.com. Um, and the th thing is with this book, um, it's all taken from the diaries and letters that we wrote because, you know, we didn't, yeah, we had no, uh, nothing to record electronically. Um, sure. And uh, so it's written like a novel, but everything in it is true. Sure. So, yeah. So it's, I think it's a good read. Well, you, you will know, Rudolf. Well, definitely. But uh, mentioning that, I'm going to also add to that. If you actually uh, buy the book and you go to the back, you have actually handwritten a page from the records. You've got exchange rates for those years. You've got each and every list of equipment and supplies for the trip, travel documents and useful books that you've had, medical supplies, household supplies. I mean, everything and beyond is actually uh, mentioned here uh, in the back of the book, the Land Rover spares and tools. So there's so much more than only, and then obviously the amazing colorful photos that's been added and the letters that was written between um, yourself and family. So yeah. there's so much more than just the, the actual trip in this book. That, that, and that's also why I opted to get the, um, the, the book itself. And so, also, um, um, with, it was interesting because we, uh, did the trip in 77, 78, but I started writing the book in 2010 and it was published in 2014, which was at the time of our 40th wedding anniversary. Amazing. Because of that, our four children were all of, had got their own accomplished talents in graphic design and artistry and everything. So our um, children all helped us with the production of the book. I see. And so our eldest daughter, she did all the, the cover and uh, the uh, black and white illustrations and maps inside. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a lot to go on. Exactly. No, it's really an amazing book and it was an amazing buy from my side um, to myself. Um, uh, and then the very, very, very last question I've got is the Foreman Glacier down in Antarctica. We didn't oh, mention yeah. that. The the glacier that you you got named after. Oh yeah, that was a surprise. I came across. Well, um, when I was in the Antarctic, um, we were doing a lot of the work. There was a lot of work being done to produce maps. There were no really reliable maps because when we'd fly around, I often went out with a pilot, and uh, he said, "Oh, that peak there is about forty miles from." Where, on, where it's shown on the map. Um, so the, the uh, surveyors are producing these maps and they soon run out of names for <laughs> all the glaciers and mountain peaks and passes. So if you've worked there, um, you get something named after you. Sure. Mine's a, a glacier. That's amazing. That's really uh, amazing. I mean, uh, I, I've seen some um, scientists and so on that's, uh, that had, uh, I don't know if it was specific penguin species or whatever named after them, but uh, a glacier is, uh, is, is definitely up there. Yeah. yeah that's, <laughs> <laughs> mineral rights on it or anything, but. <laughs> that's amazing. So, listen, Alec and Jan, I really appreciate the time uh, that you took to, to talk about your trip. And I'm sure that, you know, uh, you've mentioned some of these things so many times, um, but it's always inspiring to, to meet uh, individuals like yourself and, uh, you know, to give us a little bit of a, a kick up the bum to go out and uh, go and explore more. Uh, can I also say that um, we have a Facebook um, yes, sure. page, a Facebook page, Strangers Like Angels, which is actually different to the Instagram Strangers Like Angels um, connection we have too. 
um, they're different sort of posts for those two different um, social media settings. But sure. if you go on Strangers Like Angels, you'll find us. So we've got Strangers Like Angels on Facebook. Uh, and then on Instagram, you are Strangers Like Angels. Uh, strangers, uh, strangerslikeangels.com for the book and uh, more content. Yeah, um, that's the the three the three channels that you are using, correct? And and um, return, oh, and then return, return of a legend and explore more <laughs> and explore more exactly. So um, between all of that, you'll definitely be able to uh, uh, get a very good understanding of the history of uh, strangers like angels and obviously the future and the current situation with explore more and where the, the brand is taking um, your your adventures exactly yes perfect thanks so much uh, for taking the time and, well thank um, you thank you rudolph and we haven't had chance to find out anything about you but i know that you've done some things on your podcast that we can pick up some news about yeah sure sure hopefully hopefully uh with time we'll be able to um you know include charles somewhere along the line as well i would love to hear his story oh that um, so we'll definitely catch up again great thank you so much cheers guys have a beautiful right. week goodbye Bye. everyone Bye bye, bye.